It's called Enoteca Fontana. They have the best wines. I'm sitting there, and I was like, I'll just take your Pinot Grigio. And it comes out, and it's pink. And I sat there and waited and waited and waited, and I was like, I'm sorry, I ordered Pinot Grigio? What is this? She goes, that's our Pinot Grigio. I was like, really? She brought the bottle and showed it to me. And that's when it occurred to me. It's Grigio because the skins are gray, because it has a little bit of color. And when you do it the way they really do it there, they have a little bit of pink to it. So I was like, okay. Thank you. (laughs) I felt so dumb, but I learned. You learn by embarrassment pretty easily in the wine world, right? Oh, in life. Isn't that like the things we remember most or when we're mortified? Those emotions, they lock in those memories even more so than sometimes the positive ones. But yeah, you never forget those things. (laughs) It's a core memory. Do you have a thirst to learn about wine? Do you love stories about wonderfully obsessive people, hauntingly beautiful places, and amusingly awkward social situations? Well, that's the blend here on the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast. I'm your host, Natalie McLean, and each week I share with you unfiltered conversations with celebrities in the wine world, as well as confessions from my own tipsy journey as I write my third book on this subject. I'm so glad you're here. Now pass me that bottle, please, and let's get started. Welcome to episode 156. Are you curious about slow food and wine? What's really special about the Alto Adige region of Italy? And why should you consider Portugal and Dubai for your next wine-fueled trip? You'll get those answers and more wine tips in our chat today with Gina Birch and Julie Glenn, who host the Great Minds podcast on NPR Radio. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the full transcript of our conversation, also links to Gina and Julie's podcast and website, how you can join me in a free online wine and food pairing class, and where you can find the live stream video of this conversation on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube on Wednesday at 7 p.m. That's all in the show notes at nataliemclean.com forward slash 156. Now, on a personal note before we dive into the show, there'll be lots of sales this Friday, so if you're shopping for wine lovers in your life or for yourself, let me recommend one of my favorite wine gadgets. So first, a little context. Recorking a bottle of still wine is relatively easy, but what about bubblies? The mushroom-shaped cork is impossible to get back into the bottle because they're originally inserted under hydraulic pressure because the pressure inside a bottle of bubbly is about 90 pounds per square inch, the same as city bus tires. Plus, they expand once you pop them out, so you need a stopper designed to reseal sparkling wine bottles. Good news? They have them. These simple metal caps have two small wings that clamp under the lip of the bottle and have an internal plastic seal, and they work well to preserve your bubbly for a few days. They usually cost about $15 or less. Of course, you can always get fancier types, and you can get them at many kitchenware retailers or liquor stores as well as online. I don't have a particular favorite brand, but I'll link to one online. Be sure to keep your resealed bottle cold in the fridge and Also, let's just clear up one folklore myth that putting the handle of a spoon in a bottle also works. It doesn't, because science, (laughs) 
The bottle is left open so the bubbles dissipate and the wine is exposed to oxygen, which is what eventually will turn it off. I'll suggest some more useful gadgets in upcoming episodes for your holiday shopping. Okay, on with the show. Gina Birch grew up in Florida. Hello, Gina. Hi. And she, hello. She earned a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism and Public Relations from Troy University in Alabama. Her first job was in radio news, which eventually led her to Fort Myers, where she lives today. And there she hosted a top-rated morning show for almost 15 years. She also started writing about food and wine and travel and spirits for USA Today, the Napa Register, and Fort Myers News Press. We also have with us Julie Glenn. Hello, Julie. She earned her master's degree in communication from the Slow Food University of Gastronomic Sciences in Piedmont, Italy, and she's fluent in Italian. She also has an undergraduate degree in mass communications from the University of Missouri. She began her broadcasting career as a reporter, anchor, and producer for both CBS and NBC affiliates. And before becoming news director at WGCU, the NPR affiliate for Southwest Florida, Julie was the regular wine columnist for the Naples Daily News. Gina and Julie have been friends for years, and they host the Great Minds podcast, which is also broadcasted on NPR. They talk about the people, culture, and history behind wines, as well as travel and food pairings. And they've also interviewed some of the best-known people in the wine world, and as they note, I love this, they've only destroyed one soundboard while tasting in the studio. Oops. <laughs> and they join me now from Florida. Welcome, Gina and Julie. So glad to have you here with us. Oh, thank you for having us. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. Fantastic. So excited. Good. So tell us how you met. Where were you? Take it away. Like, how did you two ladies meet? You know, I feel like I've known Julie forever. <laughs> <laughs> I think yes. I met you at Bistro 41 the former restaurant in Bell Tower in Fort Myers. And when I came back from the master's degree in Italy, I thought I'd be a freelance writer, but it was the recession, so no. So I ended up selling wine. So my job as a wine salesperson was to go to restaurant to restaurant, to store to store, and try to sell my wines. And I was always going to be Store 41 because it was just a fun place to hang out. And Gina's best friend was managing there, and she was always doing the wine tastings. And when you go there, she was always doing 10,000 things. So you wait for at least an hour. So I would always be sitting there next to Gina, who's also tasting along with her friend, Cindy. So I was kind of like, who is this person? Why is she just kind of moving in on the wine tasting? Just trying to get free <laughs> drinks here. But I, at first I was kind of like, who is this? But then I was starting to get to know her. And I was like, she is genuinely interested and educated and actually a super cool person. So my initial like trying to squeeze on free tastings. <laughs> that went away pretty quick. And since then, we've become fast friends. And she's one of the best people I've met in the last probably 15 years. Oh, well, thank you. You know, Julie and I have similar backgrounds. We both have a passion for wine and our broadcast background as well. So we were kind of kindred spirits from the beginning. Yes, it sounds like. And is that kind of why you think the two of you work so well together, the chemistry? I mean, you obviously share a passion for wine, but are you yin and yang or is there contrasting personalities that somehow fit together in another way? I would say so. I mean, my friends joke and call me uh, the United Nations, Switzerland, because I always try to be, oh, though, it's not so bad or it's, it's good. Or <laughs> I try to find some redeeming quality about even the worst wine. Julie will just say, this tastes like butt. 
you know, or something. You know, it's just <laughs> like, it. there's nothing nice she'll just blend. say. And her face, she does not have a poker face. So you can <laughs> tell, you know, she'll just get all squinched up and like, okay, well, that's how we are kind of opposite, but it makes it fun. Absolutely. Gina is more of the fun, goes out, does all the stuff, and she's that person. I'm the one that's going to bury my nose in a book and figure out the entire history of, like, for example, where the heck Zinfandel came from. And I will go on about it for hours and bore everyone. And I can't read a room and know that everybody's like just trying to get drunk, get me to shut up. But yeah, I'm that guy. Whereas Gina is more like, chill it out, Julie. <laughs> that sounds like a good match, speaking of pairings. So can you remember the first bottle you two shared together, talked about? I think my favorite was whenever Bob Broman would come to town and I'd bring him in there and his wines are just so good. And every once in a while, you'd be there. And for those who don't know, where's Bob Broman from? He's in Napa. Okay. Broman Cellars. Um, he's in Napa and he's awesome. He had a huge history of winemaking and then he started his own thing a few years before I started selling wine. So he was one of my first ride with ever. And he's always consistently been my favorite winemaker as a human being and as good wines. And sadly, he stopped making Syrah, but he makes mainly just Cab and Sauvignon Blanc. But a Sauvignon Blanc is bomb. Ah, so. wow. And you mentioned ride with. So explain what you mean by that. Well, in the wine industry, one of the things that they do, which is a weird, really strange, steep learning curve, is you're a sales rep. You go to a hotel, you pick up the wine maker or winery principal. Sometimes you get a national sales manager too, which is helpful because they help with the selling. They're better at that because that's like what they do. But people like to meet the winemakers and the people who own the wineries. So you take them to all your accounts and they have better luck usually selling their wines into the wine list and things like that. So they weirdly have to get into random salespeople's cars. And some of the stories I've heard have been hilarious about how gross cars are of salespeople because they like living them, you know? Oh, yeah. So there's like a probably a one inch layer of French fries on the bottom Oh, because they have yeah. no time, you know, <laughs> right. but it's an interesting thing to ride with. And I know you both have ride with stories. So Gina, what is your favorite ride with story? I had a little convertible. I mean, like whatever was considered a backseat was really not a backseat. I was helping a friend in the distribution company pick up Nils Vengi. Nils is famous. He's a pioneer in Napa. He was the first winemaker to get 100 points from Parker when he was working at Groth. He wow. now does Saddleback Cellars. He's a big guy, and he had a big suitcase. And I'm like, how am I going to get this in my car? <laughs> so I had to put the top down. I had to like somehow wedge the suitcase in the back because I had no trunk, wedge Nils in. And then we went to the first place where I was taking him, and I was helping. I was going to open some of the wine for him, and I broke a cork. Oh, no. And I'm like, I cannot break in front of Nils Vengi's corks. And now, like, now I'm sweating. Now I'm getting nervous. I'm like, what am I doing? I, don't, I don't, shouldn't be here. And then, you know, it was just <laughs> horrible. But he was such a gracious guy, and we ended up having a great time together. Oh, that sounds great. And Julie, you do you have a particular drive-with story? Probably one of the more embarrassing moments of my life. I had just gotten back from Italy, and I had just kind of started so my mind is all in Italy grapes, Italian winemakers, Italian wine styles, all that stuff. But in Southwest Florida, California is king. So everybody loves everything from Napa, and that's pretty much it. So everybody knows the ins and outs and who's who and all that stuff. So my ride with that day was with Dr. Ravana, who owns Ravana, obviously. So he gets in my car, and we're driving around, and he's kind of talking and trying to engage with me. And I'm just kind of smiling and nodding because I don't really know the California scene at the time. 
And he said, well, my consulting winemaker is Heidi Barrett. I was like, okay. He goes, do you know who that is? And I was like, sorry, I don't. <laughs> I think he wanted to pull the door open and tuck and roll and get out of my car. The rest of the day, he barely said anything to me. Yeah. She's a famous yeah, consulting winemaker. Yeah, she's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, super <laughs> big deal. So I, yep. I felt really, and then when I looked her up later and told somebody else in the wine business, that's what I said. They were like, no wonder he fell asleep later in the car and didn't talk to you. <laughs> but he was very nice, but he, he wasn't like a total jerk about it. But I'm so mortified. How do you not know who Heidi Barrett is? But I'd only worked for a few months in the United States. So I was just kind of out of it. It wasn't my scene at the time, but it became my scene pretty quick. So I'm sure you absorbed lots of tips as you drove along. It almost sounds like you're on a book tour, like you're taking this author, but instead the winemaker to all of these wine shops instead of bookshops. So I'm sure you pick up a lot of tips as you go along. And have you guys ever disagreed over a particular bottle or wine or region? I think we've disagreed over bottles before because even though we're a lot alike, we still have our own personal preferences. And, you know, wine is so subjective. It's like art and you taste different things on different days. What is it, a root or a fruit? Or some weeks all I taste is cherry and everything, you know, it just, it's just different. But we don't have any major disagreements. I think we both appreciate quality wine, whether it's a great, it's one of our favorites or not. We appreciate a good, well-made wine. Mm-hmm. And what if you come across now, I know, Julie, you're blunt, but how do you handle, or do you even take on air wine that you both really don't like? Like, do you talk about wines you don't like? I probably shouldn't, but sometimes I do. (laughs) (laughs) I feel bad. And I'll say it's me. I'll always say it's me. I won't say the wines, like, objectively is crap unless it's flawed. But I won't say this is just horrible, the worst thing I've ever, I wouldn't do that, but it's just... This is not working for me right now. That's usually right. what I will say. And right. that means to me, I'm not recognizing the quality, but I do appreciate the effort, but I just <laughs> don't think that I would ever buy it just because it doesn't work for my taste. I mean, it may be the best thing in the world for some people, but it's just not for me. Sure. My standard line is, this is unlike anything I've ever tasted. <laughs> it's like, move That's on. a good one. It's like what newspapers. <laughs> Jill, you also have a story about Pinot Grigio. Share that Another one with embarrassing us. one. This is awesome. Perfect. If you're ever in the town of Parma, which the school is in Piedmont, but the campus I was on for that first year of communication was near Parma. So I lived in Parma, Italy for a year. There's a place on the main street, which has been 15 years, so I forget, but it's called Enoteca Fontana, but it's not right next to a fountain. So it's a little confusing, but they have the best wines. I'm sitting there. And I just wanted a still white wine. I was Proseccoed out because that is Prosecco country, but I didn't want Prosecco at that moment. So I just wanted a still white. So I sat down and I was still new to the area. So I kind of looked at the thing and I was like, I'll just take your Pinot Grigio. And it comes out and it's pink. And I sat there and waited and waited and waited. And I was like, I'm sorry, I ordered Pinot Grigio. What is this? She goes, that's our Pinot Grigio. I was like, really? She brought the bottle and showed it to me. And that's when it occurred to me, it's Grigio because the skins are gray, because it has a little bit of color. And when you do it the way they really do it there, they have a little bit of pink to it. So I was like, okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I felt so dumb, but I learned. You learn by embarrassment pretty easily in the wine world, right? Oh, in life. Isn't that how, like, the things we remember most are when we're mortified or... Those emotions, they lock in those memories even more so than sometimes the positive ones. But yeah, you never forget those things. (laughs) It's a core memory. 
<laughs> yes. And Gina, let's make sure we're handing out the embarrassment equally. Do you have an embarrassing wine story? Well, I think the Nils Vingi one ranks up there for me. There are probably more than I can count when I was learning, like like Julie said. Sometimes I act like I know, you know, walk up and like, well, why are we tasting in this order? And I said that in Oregon once and the guy said, because that's how we do it here. And I'm like, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I did pull up on a crush pad once in a rental car. It was a small winery and it was just this big concrete slab. So I just rolled right up and <laughs> he came spot. out. Oh my God. He yelled, get off my crush pad. <laughs> and I looked around I'm like, this looks like a parking lot to me. I'm sorry. And I backed off. <laughs> they do. And that of course is where the trucks come in and dump the grapes. But yeah, you might be in the way there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. We didn't hit it off so well, but. <laughs> <laughs> so you both live in the Naples, Fort Myers area. And of course the Naples Winter Wine Festival is famous. Why is it unlike other wine festivals? What goes on? You know, I think it's a combination of things, and I don't know how they were able to tap into this, but you've got celebrity and star power. You've got people flying in from all over the world, paying $15,000 to come here. So this is not your regular weekend wine festival. And the lots that they auction off are ridiculous. And they have McLarens that are specially made, you know, cars just for this. They have these magnums and trips around the world with famous winemakers and people come here, they have money, they want to spend it. They want to have fun. It's like an exclusive club and they've raised over $220 million. Wow. It's one of the highest grossing in the last 20 years. And what's the cause? The charity Children's cause? charities. So they go okay. to a lot of hospitals and education and they've really done a lot. Naples is one of those communities where you have the haves and the have-nots. Uh, you know, there's a big distinction there, and that's helping to kind of make that a little more even, I guess. Sure. It's kind of weird because you have Naples, which is really high-end, and then 20 minutes away, you have a farm worker village called Immokalee. And it's a great little town. It's a little tight-knit town, but there's a lot of need there. So it's Naples Children Education Foundation, NCEF, and they have tons of money there in Immokalee with a lot of programs for after school. There's an entire giant building. It's really fabulous what they've done. That is terrific. I think one of the appeals is that it's very international. It's not very site-specific. It's not American only. It's not Washington. It's not Napa. It's Naples and everybody in the world comes. And I think some of the winemakers and principals, you know how you get to go to a convention and you meet other people who do the same stuff? It's just kind of fun. So I think that they like coming to this to reconnect with people that they know. It's kind of like, I don't want to say it's a conference, but they all socialize and get to talk to each other. And then the people who spend tons of money on the wine get to talk with people they're buying it from. So they really like that kind of interaction. Awesome. And paying $15,000 just to get in the door, then they bid on all of these exclusive lots and things. That is amazing. And there's lots of dinners too, right? At people's homes with winemakers. Yeah. And man, you should see it. They have like interior designers come in and completely transform a penthouse condo. And they had one look at like the interior of a giant plane one time. Oh my gosh. Just for the dinner. Yeah. Just for the dinner. Yeah. The hosts are like throwing a wedding. It's like, you know, they spend that much money on florists and entertainment really? and designers. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Musicians. And then they have chefs come from all over the country and the world who cook in these people's incredible kitchens, which I don't know if they've ever been cooked in them themselves because the restaurants <laughs> here are always full and they have beautiful kitchens. So these chefs come in, they're like, 
Dang. <laughs> but they come in and do the cooking for the dinner, and then they have a sommelier assigned to each wine dinner, and then it's paired with a given winemaker. So like Chateau Petrus was here one year, and it was with, I think it was, I don't remember, but a chef, I think from Chicago, and we could smell it, and I was just like, this is so good. <laughs> <laughs> but those were great moments. And then, you know, the owner of Chateau Petrus is there for dinner, too, and they're sitting there side by side, enjoying the wine with this wonderful chef-prepared meal, and they're all top star chefs. Wow. My only question is, do they take volunteer sommeliers to pour wine or even just wash glasses? <laughs> Interestingly, they do take some volunteers that'll help with pouring wine, especially at the auction. You'll see every wine sales rep lines up to be able to be part of that in this area. It's like a who's who of everybody in the wine industry in Southwest Florida that has been here long enough to get their name in there. And then they'll be pouring wine for people at the auction tables. The wine that is flowing, it's not like, you know, your house wine. It's like they're just pouring bottle after bottle of Chateau Montrachet. I mean, <laughs> champagne. I mean, you're just like... Wine heaven. Awesome. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And then, so one year, you both do interviews with the people who come in, which is a great opportunity. But you met Salvatore Ferragamo. Tell us who he is and what happened. Well, Ferragamo, the house of Ferragamo, I mean, Italian designers, the shoes, the apparel is just top-notch. It's expensive. It's beautiful. It's elegant. And he also makes wine. I think they have a, like a, can't say chateau because it's in Tuscany, but they've got a place where you could go. Hospitality is a big deal. and Like an experience kind of thing. Yes. And Julie and I are sitting there and we're like, oh, Salvatore Ferragamo. And then we start looking at, oh my gosh, who do we I'm wear? Look at our shoes. Dress for less shoes. <laughs> sticking <laughs> our shoes under the sticker t- on the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> And he That's comes great. in looking like he just stepped out of a magazine, just the suit that fits perfect and the shoes. And, and he's so gracious and handsome. Yeah. We're like, nice <laughs> to meet you. Like I had my bubba teeth in, you know. <laughs> That's great. And how was he as an interviewee? He was really nice. He was super cool. Very charming. Very nice. My favorite Italian that was charming was when we talked with Ferrari from Trentino Doc. When we were like, so which came first, the car or the wine? <laughs> he was like, the wine. Because <laughs> cars didn't happen until the early 1900s, and we've been around since whatever. I'm like, okay, thank you for straightening that out. But he was sweet, too. I love that Trento Doc stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And you're also drawn, Julie, to the Alto Adige region. Why is that? What is unique about that particular Italian region? I just think it's so overlooked. And it's so beautiful. It's beautiful to visit. It's not commercialized. One of the things that turns me off and makes me kind of sad in the wine world is treating wine as a commodity. And it feels like I'm an Alto J. They don't do that yet. Hopefully they never will. But I really think that white wines from Italy are some of the most overlooked and delicious things in the world, personally. And Alto J. does an incredible job with them. When I was there at some little tiny hotel that I rolled up to with no plans, I ate at their little restaurant and I had a Gewurztraminer that was like life-changing. And that grape I had dismissed for so many years, but that Gewurztraminer was it. And now I've tried every Gewurztraminer I can ever since. And I'm seeing a little bit of it, but it was like their house wine. It was incredible. Wow. It's like you're trying to recapture that memory, like the restaurant critic in Ratatouille reminded of his mother's pasta. (laughs) (laughs) Was that the wine that was your aha wine that started it all? Or was there a wine before that that really said to you, 
like, oh, I need to know more about wine. Things have changed a lot since the early 90s, but um, <laughs> and that's when I first started learning about wine. And I am not going to be too proud. And I will just admit that my aha wine was Camus Conundrum in 1993 or four. Full-bodied Napa Valley wine. Mm-hmm. It was a big, good white wine blend. I really liked it back then. And then when my French friend told me this is like a red wine drinker's white, and back then it kind of was, then I was like, okay, I feel a little bit better. And then I started getting into Shiraz because that was the era. You know, when you're coming off of Coke and Diet Coke as a teenager, it kind of makes sense to go with more fruit-forward stuff when you're a young 20s person. So I can kind of see that. But that's what I did. Yes, absolutely. And Gina, there's no wine shame here, but what was the wine that sort of was your aha kind of wine? Well, I was a wine snob early on because I knew which type of white zen I preferred. Oh. Behringer <laughs> or Sutter Home. No, I don't want that. Yes, I want that. No, but I think the wine that really flipped it for me was a Jack London Zinfandel. And this is why it did, because it was the first time I put a lot of effort into cooking a meal to match the wine. And when I made this beef dish and picked this particular wine, I had a little help choosing which one. It was just like this, you know, and it's like, that's how food and wine are supposed to be. And then I was like, oh, you know, I had that moment where I'm thinking differently about wine. It's not just a knockback. And I always knew food went with wine. I mean, as a kid, we'd have a little bit of wine with dinner, but this was when I owned it and I really learned it and appreciated it on my own as an adult. Wow. Staying on food and wine pairings, have you ever had a really weird or unusual food and wine pairing, Gina? I went to a wine dinner and they had something with grilled pineapple and Pinot Noir. Really? Did it work? And I was like, oh. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be open. Maybe this Pinot has some more tropical notes, or maybe it's got a brulee kind of note that might go with, because, you know, pinots are all over the board, and it didn't work. You know, I understand what they were going for after the chef explained, but it just didn't work. I thought, this is just a waste of a course for me. Oh, that's a crime against pinot then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> that's too bad. How about you, Julie? Do you have any memorable food and wine pairings and or any weird ones that you've tasted over the years? This is a memorable one, and Gina was there. Remember when we went to that champagne five-course dinner with Brian Rowland made all the food? Oh, that yeah. That wine shop that closed? I did not expect champagne to go with, what was it, like five or seven courses? Of course, Brian's a really good chef here locally, and he has a catering thing, and he is just phenomenal. But you give him a challenge. We're going to have seven courses with all champagne and different champagnes, like different vintage, rosé, all different things. And uh, it was just mind-blowing. I fully did not expect it to be that good. And it was incredible. Every single dish went perfectly with every one of the different champagnes. I don't remember what champagne it was, though. Was it Bollinger? I, gosh, I can't remember. But you know, some of them are so yeasty and big, you need a substantial food to eat with it. You just can't sip it, you know, you need to really enjoy it, I think. Well, you can if you really challenge yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give me that. You can't just sip it. I know you. <laughs> I would not kick any champagne out of bed. I would cuddle it all night long. <laughs> that is great. But that is a good point to make, Julie. Like, we often don't think of champagne or any other sparkling wine as anything but the beginning of the meal or for a toast or whatever. 
but it's one of the most food-friendly wines on the planet between the natural acidity and that swarm of bubbles. Was the chef able to pair it with like a meaty dish as well? He did. I remember there was like a kind of a short rib type thing, but done on the light side without like tomato or anything like that. So it was fantastic, but it was very rich. It was like on a truffle cream kind of a situation so that acidity just cut right through. But another great champagne pairing is potato chips or fried chicken. Oh, yeah. I oh, love it. Love that. Totally. The shabby sheep. Getting a little so, lower yeah. out there, but it's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always say it's like rhinestones on jeans. You know, you can dress the up or down and yeah. it can be a <laughs> night just with the wine itself. Oh, that's fantastic. So I mentioned, Julie, that you uh, went to Slow Food University in Italy. What was that like? What did you do as part of the studies there? Why did you decide to go there in the first place? I was a member of Slow Food for years because I've always liked that idea of, yeah, there's fast food, but let's not forget where it all originates and why we eat what we eat when we eat and all that stuff. I always thought that was really interesting because of my rabbit hole nature of having to find everything out. But I always was a member of Slow Food and then I got a thing in the mail and I was really getting tired of TV news because it's a drag after a while. It was a thing saying we're starting this communication program it's a one-year master's program. Go ahead and apply. I'm like, yeah, I'll apply. If they accept me, I'll go ahead and go. It's a sign because <laughs> I believe in signs all the time. So I'm kind of like, well, it's a sign. If they want me, then they clearly it's something I need to do. And they were only accepting 23 students from all around the world. And we ended up with 23 students from 11 different countries. And they accepted me. So I was like, well, I have to make this happen. So I packed up one giant suitcase, like a big gross American, and moved over there for a year with my dog in a backpack. <laughs> I was so embarrassed because there's no Americans with Disabilities Act over in Europe. So you're changing trains and you're like, all the way down the stairs, man, it was a workout. But I finally got there. It was a challenge. But the year was incredible once I finally found an apartment, speaking no Italian at all when I got there. I had taken three years of French, which was useless and is now completely gone because the Italian crowd, uh, there's a finite amount of space in the brain, I think, for languages for me. So the French is gone, but the Italian's there. But it wasn't when I got there. The courses were all taught in English, which was great. We had to study five main things, which is pasta, wine, cheese, cured meats, and olive oil. I love that curriculum. That sounds oh like hell. Yeah, all the homework. <laughs> oh. Yeah, It was terrible. I don't know how I lived through it. We had what they call stage, which is where you go to different places. So we went to Campania, Tuscany, many different regions throughout Italy. And then we had to go to Burgundy, France, where I ate more escargot in a week than I think anybody ever has, because <laughs> I love that. And then we had to also go to Spain, we went to Barcelona, and we went to Germany. I love how she says, we had to go. We had to, yeah. We like, had oh. to go. Well, it was funny because the Germans in the class were mad we had to go to Germany. They were like, we don't have any good food. Let's go somewhere else. <laughs> but it actually, it turned out it was really good. It was super informative. I learned a ton. There's nothing like being there to learn things. And that's what Gina is so good about getting to do because she travels so much. She travels so much. And I'm going to ask her about that in a minute. But you met your husband there. How did that? Was he a student, Julie? No. No. <laughs> so where did you pick him up? <laughs> At a restaurant. So I was sitting there in a restaurant eating potato-filled raviolis, which sounds redundant, but it was the lightest fluffy potato, like mashed, kind of like, it was so good, inside of a ravioli. I'm in Palmer, which is ravioli land, and it's in a truffle cream sauce. So I'm sitting here cutting it with my butter knife, trying to make it last. Well, he thinks I'm eating steak. He leans over. I saw him when he walked in the door. He walked in the door of the restaurant and I was like, oh, there's trouble. 
<laughs> and I was right, was I not, Gina? Trouble-orama. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, comes in, sits like a table away, and he says, to piace carne, which means, do you like meat? So he was Italian. Yeah, he's speaking Italian. I don't speak Italian. I've got a little dictionary. And he's like, do you like meat? That was his line. At least he didn't say sausage. The piaggio carne. I'm like, I'm not eating meat. What are you talking about? I'm having a ravioli that's filled with potatoes. And I'm with a vegetarian. <laughs> I was with a couple other girls from class. But yeah, it was uh, quite the come on. But anyway, the next night I met him in the piazza at 8 o'clock because he sent me a text saying, I will see you in the piazza at 8. That was it. That was it. So I'm looking it up in my dictionary, and I asked the other people in the class that spoke Italian. I was like, what does this mean? They're like, it says, see you in Piazza Garibaldi at 8. So like, okay, I guess I'm going to go there. And of course, I showed up in like Eskimo boots because it's cold. And in Italy, you don't do that. They're walking around in stilettos on cobblestone streets with ice and snow. And I'm wearing these Ugg boots, jeans, and a giant <laughs> fat coat. Not the Italian style at all. And he's like in this beautiful trench coat, nice shoes. Yes. He goes, you look like an Eskimo. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's cold. What are you talking about? <laughs> wow. And it still worked out. You know, do you like meat? See you in the piazza. You look like an Eskimo. That doesn't sound like the unfolding of a love story. <laughs> no. No. It's but worked it worked out. Yeah. All right. It's been 13 years that we've been married now, so... Fantastic. Wow. And I don't think anybody saw that coming. Anybody who knew us. I don't think anybody saw it working out, but it's worked out great. That is great. Awesome. And Gina, now you do travel a lot for what you do, especially your column for USA Today, the 10 Best column. Tell us about that. So 10 Best is a division of USA Today that's travel related. And I am the local editor for Fort Myers. So I will write 10 Best Italian Restaurants, 10 Best wine bars, 10 best things to do with your kids. So it covers a large spectrum. But also when I travel, like went to Portugal, 10 reasons why everyone's flocking to Portugal. Oh, tell us about those. I'd love to hear about why do we want to go to Portugal? Yeah. So this was pre-pandemic and some of the reasons were it's affordable, the hospitality, the food is amazing. The wine is spectacular. The scenery they have, I think, more UNESCO World Heritage Sites than any other country or per capita or something. I might have that statistic wrong, but I mean, they've got just such a diverse culture and climate and miles and miles of coastline and the inland area, the Alentejo, where some of the wines are. It's just phenomenal. I think a lot of them are underrated. Like Julie was saying, the Alto Adige, it's, I think, the same with a lot of the Portuguese wines and I just love that whole area. It was wonderful. And did you get into Oporto, the town where all the barrels are aging and it smells like alcohol heaven all the time? <laughs> it was crazy. You know, we went in some of those caves and they were like some ports there that were over a hundred years old and they had cobwebs on them. And it was just a really interesting place to discover. Lovely. Oh my gosh. And then recently you were in Dubai. Went to Dubai for the World Expo. And it was supposed to have been last year, but we all know what happened last year, right? Nobody went anywhere last year. And everything in Dubai is over the top to begin with. And this expo was, it's like a thousand acres. There are almost 200 pavilions. And this is the first time every country had their own pavilion. I've never been to a World Fair or World Expo before, so I didn't know what to expect. But this was just mind-blowing, really. And to discover a lot of these different countries, and most of the pavilions had some kind of food and wine. 
which was really fascinating for me to try all these different cuisines. I just wanted to eat. It's like Epcot on steroids. You know, I just wanted yeah, to eat I was my say, way. All the little <laughs> pavilions, it's, you know, all the countries, but probably a little bit more authentic than Disney. I don't know. Yeah, much more, much more. Yes. <laughs> and it wasn't just food and wine. You know, they had innovations and technology, and there were so many more things to the expo than just food and wine. So, And does Dubai have a wine culture or is wine illegal there? I get that mixed up as to what's going on. Dubai is Muslim, so you're not supposed to drink. But in the hotels and in restaurants, and most of the restaurants are in hotels, that's how they get away with it, that you are able to have alcohol. And I mean, I had some of the best craft cocktails I've had in Dubai and I've had wine was from all over the world. I did not find out how they imported, if it's like a three-tier system or if it's government controlled or if they let foreign companies bring it in. I'm not sure how that works, but in every restaurant, there was a decent wine list. So I didn't have any trouble having wine with my food. <laughs> That's great. And it's a city sort of in the middle of the desert, isn't it? Was Sex in the City, the movie filmed there or something? Yeah. So Sex in the City was in Abu Dhabi, which is neighboring Dubai. Okay. And they're a little more conservative there. So we did go there and I had to cover a little, be more conservative about shoulders and knees and those kinds of things. But yeah, it is in the desert. It's the uh, Arabian Sea or the Arabian Gulf, which on the other side, people call it the Persian Gulf, but it's the same body of water. So they really have to fly everything in. So it's really expensive. But I'm telling you, it is just like no place I've ever been. And if you ever have a chance to go to Dubai, the architecture is insane and the technology. And yeah, they do have fashion. Not everyone's all covered up. It's just a really intriguing place to visit. Oh, fantastic. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Julie and Gina. Here are my takeaways. Number one, I love learning more about the Alto Adige region of Italy, and especially Julie's story about Pinot Grigio. I'm adding those wines to my shopping list. Number two, I'm fascinated with Dubai and what it would be like to visit that city. I'm putting that one on my bucket list. And number three, I agree that wine is both subjective like art and at times highly embarrassing, and that we can learn so much if we open ourselves up to those experiences. In the show notes, you'll find a full transcript of our conversation, links to Julie and Gina's podcast and website, how you can join me in a free online wine and food pairing class, and where you can find the live stream video of this conversation on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube this Wednesday at 7 p.m. That's all in the show notes at nataliemclean.com forward slash 156. You won't want to miss next week when we continue our chat with Gina and Julie. In the meantime, if you missed episode 89, go back and take a listen. I chat with sommelier Chris Scott about some really great wine tasting tips. I'll share a short clip with you now to whet your appetite. Finally, people are starting to realize you can learn about wine and food pairing at home and it's easier. I mean, there's no babysitter. There's no driving to the class. There's no be there on Wednesday or it doesn't work. It's very flexible and they get to meet wine lovers around the world. They get lifetime access to the course. So a lot of those factors work in favor of online courses. And I think it wasn't until COVID changed our minds about a lot of things that we could do online that more people realized, hey, it's possible. It's fun. And I need something to do during quarantine anyway, so I may as well learn about wine and come out stronger when the lockdown's over.
If you like this episode, please tell one friend about it this week, especially someone you know who'd be interested in the wines and trends we discussed. Thank you for taking the time to join me here. I hope something great is in your glass this week. Perhaps a zesty Italian white wine that's a little pink around the edges. You don't want to miss one juicy episode of this podcast, especially the secret full-bodied bonus episodes that I don't announce on social media. So subscribe for free now at nataliemcclain.com forward slash subscribe. Meet me here next week. Cheers. Cheers.